This is the Brooklyn Bookworm Podcast. I'm Penny Chin, and our guest today is Ava Chin, urban forager extraordinaire and author of the award-winning book, Eating Wildly, Foraging for Life, Love, and the Perfect Meal. Just a little background on Ava. Ava is a Queens native and former urban forager columnist for the New York Times. She has written for the Los Angeles Times Sunday Magazine, Marie Claire, The Village Voice, and Spin Magazine. She holds a PhD from the University of Southern California and a master's from the writing seminars at Johns Hopkins. So welcome, Ava. Hi, it's great to be here. (laughs) I'm going to be reading from the first chapter of Eating Wildly, um, all about foraging. And this is a period in time in which I was looking for something and I was a bit stymied because I had missed the season, uh, the growing season for this particular plant. I've been foraging long enough to know that what you're looking for is often elusive and what you do find can be completely unexpected. You can train your eye, research the telltale clues and signs, but nature has a way of surprising you, especially here in the city. Even if you return to the same place at the same time year after year, charting the weather patterns, noting the ratio of sunshine and temperature to rain, it's no guarantee that you'll get what you're looking for, no matter how well prepared you might be. Foraging for food is a little like a mythic quest. You may think you know what you want and expend a lot of energy and dogged determination making lists and plans for obtaining it, only to find it shimmering elsewhere like a golden chalice just out of reach. In the seasons that I spent searching for wild edibles, taking long walks as solace after a breakup, or searching for fruit-bearing trees after the death of a loved one, I've learned that nature has a way of revealing things in its own time, providing discoveries along the way. From morel mushrooms bursting through the soil to a swarm of on-the-move bees scouting out a new home, I've been lucky enough to meet other foragers on my journey, herbalists who've introduced me to the healing properties of common weeds like motherwort and stinging nettles, Asian ladies collecting ginkgos, those stinky fruit that litter sidewalks every fall, expert and amateur mycologists who've taught me how to make mushroom spore prints that resemble honeycomb and starbursts and how to cook up my fungal finds into fragrant culinary wonders. Burly beekeepers who show me the art of relocating honeybees safely in the city and giving me tastes of the sweetest wild honey. It's the unexpected bounty and regenerative powers of nature that have deepened my connection with my hometown, my family, and even myself, transforming old feelings of not being good enough or unworthy into new ways of seeing and being, like fresh wild asparagus or violets erupting from the earth every spring. That is actually one of my favorite themes in the book. (laughs) Excuse me. How would um, someone in New York City begin foraging? Um, I mean, obviously, we're surrounded by parks and things like little parks and little things all over, but. Right. I always. The safest way. I always suggest that anyone who's interested in foraging go on a foraging walk with an expert. You need a guide to show you what is edible versus what is a potentially poisonous look like. And after you've done that a couple of times, 
I always suggest supplementing your education with certain guidebooks. I love Yul Gibbon's Stalking the Wild Asparagus. That is my foraging Bible. Um, Yul Gibbon's uh, really put foraging on the map in this country with his book Stalking the Wild Asparagus that was published in the early 1960s. So guidebooks like that, the Peterson Field Guides are pretty great as well. If you've got a smartphone, there is an app called iPlant that the Colorado, um, Boulder, Colorado herbalist Bridget Mars uh, is, the, is the owner of. Um, and she's a great herbalist and forager, and, and that's a really interesting app. I, I'm not ashamed to admit that I purchased my first smartphone because I wanted that app. <laughs> yeah, I found her on the web. <laughs> So I saw her, yeah. So then how did the whole urban foraging thing come around for the New York Times? So I started really foraging in earnest as an adult um, at a time where I really needed to find something to sustain me. Uh, My grandmother, who was my surrogate mother, was reaching the end of her life. I had just broken up with somebody that I thought I was going to get married to, who I was hoping to get married to. Um, And I was uh, facing turning 40, uh, single um, and alone at a time in which I really yearned to set down roots and, you know, potentially start a family. So in that time, oh, I should also mention I was under pressure uh, in my tenure track teaching job uh, at the College of Staten Island. Um, and I'd been told that I needed to write more uh, and publish more or else my job was in danger. So being able to take long walks in nature and seeing that uh, nature, the, the wild weeds that had, an edu- has had a medicinal and a culinary background, um, were growing all around me, uh, helped, gave me some form of solace uh, during that time. And then I realized that actually being in touch with nature uh, created wonderful metaphors uh, in terms of my own personal life. So I wrote an essay about finding an offering under an old oak tree in the middle of Prospect Park. And I thought, you know, this is going to be a perfect piece for the New York Times if they'd run it uh, for the Metro section. So I sent it to a variety of different editors at the Times. And while they all liked the story or they thought the writing was good, um, but they kind of felt like, well, it really wasn't for them. And it got to the point where, um, let's say, I had gone through editors A, B, C, and D, um, and editor A told me go to editor D and then editor D would say things like oh well, you know um, yeah sorry we can't take it why don't you talk to editor A so I was going in circles <laughs> eventually what happened is the story landed on the desk of a brand new editor of the Times who was editing a brand new section at the Times it was a hyper local section called the local and the areas that this hyper local section covered were two highly urban areas in Brooklyn, Fort Greene and Clinton Hill. He said to me, he was a forger himself, he said, uh, I would love it if you did something like this for me, 
but can you do it only uh, writing about things you find in Fort Greene, Clinton Hill? And I said, yes, I will do it. <laughs> and then once I started, the first time I attempted to to do it, the first time I took a walk through the neighborhoods, I thought, I'm crazy. You know, these are wonderfully vibrant neighborhoods that are not known for their green spaces. Um, but what was wonderful and surprising was the ways in which nature and the weeds are tenacious. And so there are wild, edible things that are growing even in cracks in the pavement. And so, again, that was another source of solace. Um, and, uh, you know, that's how the Urban Forager was born. So your tenacity <laughs> equaled those of the plants. Yeah, I suppose so. <laughs> yeah, your perseverance. Yes, I'm surprised that you could find much. I mean, there's only um, Fort Greene Park, and there's a lot of things in the pavement. <laughs> uh-huh. And there are, there are tiny little triangular-shaped parks, um, eventually what happens is folks who lived in the neighborhood who are my readers started opening their doors in their backyards to me and saying, can you tell me what this is? I found it growing in my backyard or, you know, in some potted plants near my vegetable garden, things like that. So that was really fun. Urban soil is notoriously polluted and you know, uncared for and not very necessarily productive for vegetables and things like that. So how do you know that the things that you're collecting are going to be all right, edible? Right, all right to eat. Mm-hmm. So, well, I have, there, I have two approaches. Um, number one, although I write about things that are edible that are growing in tree pits and are growing on the street, I don't actually eat eat those things. Um, what I do is I notice what's growing around us and then I'll go to areas that are a little bit more pristine mm-hmm. uh, and search for them there. So, for example, I'm a professor on a campus on Staten Island that has 204 acres uh, of land that is that abuts the green belt, uh, which is a series of parks mm-hmm. um, that... Are, are, are linked, a series of linked parks, giant green spaces on Staten Island. So I forage for things there. Um, basically, when you forage, when you're an urban forager, you want to be aware of where your stuff is growing. Uh, you want to pick from places that are away from traffic and that are in basically highly elevated areas. So there are certain parts of Prospect Park and Central Park that are really great. Um, because you don't have a lot of cars, you know, driving through. And my campus is a wonderful area, too, because we don't have dogs, um, people walking their dogs in the area. So there's a lot of great stuff, wild mushrooms that are growing um, in those areas. If you want, if you're foraging in a particular place uh, that is a highly urban area um, and you're worried about it, I always tell people, uh, you know, get the soil tested. Um, the same way you would do if you were living in the middle of Brooklyn and wanted to, you know, have, were lucky enough to have a backyard and wanted to start a vegetable garden. Uh, you could get the soil tested. Brooklyn College uh, has very inexpensive soil testing. Uh, you just send them a sample and they'll tell you how, this, how healthy the soil is. 
You mentioned cars. So what's the link to the cars and the soil? Exhaust. So mm-hmm. you want to uh, you want to um, you don't want your food by exhaust. Um, you know, but I should say that uh, in terms of wild food, um, if you look at our industrial agriculture and the amount of pesticides uh, and herbicides they use um, in the soil, several applications within a given season, uh, maybe even more than several, um, I will take my chances with the wild food any day (laughs) over that. We try to eat as organically as possible now that, spoiler alert, I have a child. Um, (laughs) So, so, so yeah, you know, I, I prefer the wild food. This earlier, everybody wanted to know about Eli. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then, and then, what happened to him? And in the book, he he's one of the he's a real person, obviously, yeah. but he's also a character in the book. Um, so, so yes, Eli is a real person. His I changed his first name. He's a very private person, um, but uh, he is lovely. He was my earliest foraging partner. Um, I think that there's a there's a, a question throughout the book, which is whether or not our relationship is going to blossom into something else. Our friendship is going to blossom into uh, a more romantic relationship. Um, and Eli, uh, as you know, spoiler alert, um, ends up leaving Brooklyn and moving to Boulder, Colorado. And at a certain point in the book, I go out and I visit him. Um, and I have a kind of a revelation with Eli, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, where it's one of those situations where you're thinking, oh, okay, well, all your friends are like, he's a great guy. And, you know, it's, it's, you guys have so much in common. And what about Eli? Why don't you get together? You know, um, and it was one of those things where even in the back of my head, I was thinking all those things too, right? Um, but, you know, there's some people who you're really just going to be friends with. And other people where, you know, it will blossom into something new. Um, you kind of can't push it. And one of the wonderful things about foraging that I discovered was, uh, you know, you, you can't, um, you know, what is it about uh, putting putting a, a, uh, a round peg into a, or putting a square peg into a round hole, right? You can't, you can't kind of force those things. All you can do, I think, is be open to it. And, and if it works and it happens, then great. Um, but if not, you know, that's fine too. Uh, and just to follow up, Eli is doing great. He's still in Boulder. I saw him recently, uh, on, um, at, uh, when I was, uh, this summer when I was doing a mini book tour, uh, and he's doing fabulously. Uh, I wish he only lived closer and I could, you know, set him up with, uh, any number of, really wonderful women who also like to bike and, you know, to be healthy as well. So did your being Chinese have any interest in your foraging and your cooking? Well, because my grandfather was the person who cooked the most in our family, and because he he was Chinese from Toisan, uh, and he lived and worked um, in Chinese restaurants, most of his life. So he worked as a waiter, then he moved up to becoming a bartender, and then he was a manager at different Chinese restaurants uh, through throughout the five boroughs. And because of that, he was able to learn how to cook from the 
chefs at the Chinese restaurants in which he worked. So he would make elaborate meals. And really, the women in my family didn't cook. They were all college educated. Uh, my mom was a liberated woman in the 70s. Liberated women uh, did not cook, did not spend their time cooking. So it was really my grandfather who helped fill the gap. And so, like a lot of Chinese, he believed that your food is your medicine. So that meant that all of the ingredients he cooked with had to be the best. And he cooked with a number of ingredients that I think other people would consider unusual. So medicinal roots, uh, different kinds of mushrooms and fungi uh, that um, he prized or Chinese people prized for the consistency uh, over necessarily sometimes the flavor, kind of like tofu, right? Um, and so because of him, I, I believe my palate was really, uh, you know, um, established because of this uh, early culinary, um, you know, bounty that my grandfather provided. And while my grandfather didn't teach me how to forage, um, I think that being prepared to eat uh, someone unusual ingredients from my childhood uh, kind of prepped me for uh, eating wild food later on in life. Can you give me some examples of those kinds of unusual foods that your grandfather may have prepared that sort of opened your palate? So he would cook, um, he could cook, really cook anything well, but um, he would use donggui, uh, which is angelica root. Um, and that is in a, a lot of uh, different kinds of soups he would make um, and long braises. And donggui, uh, he always taught me, was good for any kind of women's issues, whether uh, it was... Um, you know, a woman dealing with difficult menses, uh, or, uh, you know, even after birth, um, a woman could uh, drink donggui in a soup. Uh, you can even make it in the form of a tea. Uh, so that was one of the roots that he used to cook with. It's kind of an unusual flavor. Uh, that's a little bit difficult to describe. Um, and I don't <clears throat> often see these kinds of soups in Chinese restaurants. Uh, it's it's a kind of thing that really I've been able to find in home cooking. Um, again, a lot of Chinese people believe that your food is your medicine. So, and my grandfather was no different. How about performing? Now, I was very interested in reading that you uh, did a lot of poetry slams. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was pretty amazing for a Chinese. For a Chinese girl. <laughs> so. Yeah. I, I really started writing because as a child I was really interested in reading. Um, I loved to read. And one of the things I didn't see though were the stories of the Chinese Americans around me. Uh, I didn't see any stories about my grandfather who was a restaurant worker his entire life. Uh, restaurant work is, can be really brutal on the body. Uh, so his body was filled with all sorts of scars and burst blood vessels uh, that were the effect of so many decades of hard labor. Um, <clears throat> so I, I, I yearn to see his stories, uh, my own stories uh, of things that uh, I personally experienced um, 
I was searching for books about uh, Chinese Americans that I really couldn't find. Yes, there were certain books like uh, The Fifth Chinese Daughter um, and and like maybe a few others, but there um, didn't really seem to be uh, any stories about like fourth generation Chinese Americans um, or, uh, you know, stories of uh, stories of struggle and survival from those older generations. Um, and there weren't even things that I saw about just the Asian American experience. Um, you know, uh, so much was written about what, well, well, what is written about Asian Americans in the media is largely about the model minority. Uh, but my grandfather wasn't a model minority, you know, he was largely the silent voice, um, of the working class, you know, and so I yearn to see more of those stories. So, uh, in the nineties, the early nineties, when I started performing at the New York weekend, uh, so it was a very culturally diverse community at the New York weekend, and I started to, um, write very prosy, uh, poetry. Um, I was mostly trained as a, a fiction writer in college, um, but I was the, the cafe at the time. The New York Poets Cafe was hot. Uh, there were, you know, young poets and college students and professors and editors and agents were all going uh, and meeting at the cafe um, and slamming. And so I started off reading at the open mic, and then. Uh, from there, I gained the confidence to slam. Uh, sometimes I won slams, sometimes I lost them. Uh, but I got getting better and better. Uh, and it was really a thrilling and an exciting adventure. I read on stages at the Whitney, Woodstock 94, uh, PS 122, The Knitting Factory. Uh, I read um, in Berlin, Hamburg, Prague. Uh, and you know college campuses across the northeast uh, it was very very exciting and fun time uh, but I always knew that um, I wanted to go back to writing prose and I wanted so so from there I wrote short stories um, of different aspects of the Asian American experience that I saw um, and I I was mostly focused on fiction uh, in graduate school until I reached the point where I had landed my tenure track teaching job at CUNY, where I was teaching creative nonfiction. Um, and uh, then I was told by my chair, no, you really need to focus more on your fiction and stop writing these novels and blah, blah, blah. So um, then that's when uh, The Urban Forager was born for The New York Times. And then out of that... Uh, Eating Wildly was born because I realized that Eating Wildly was really, there was a personal story behind how I became a forager in the first place. And that was Eating Wildly. And and good preparation for doing all these book tours. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. And it's been, actually the book tour has been really fun because I've been meeting folks who are interested in food, uh, people who didn't think they were interested in nature, but who came, found the book because they were interested in food, and the book has recipes. Um, 
The book's been out for uh, over a year now. Uh, it garnered um, an MFK Fisher Award uh, first prize in the book category. That was a thrill. Um, from the book, uh, I've been able, I wrote my first piece for Marie Claire magazine. It's sort of a follow up to Eating Wildly, in case anyone's interested in that. Uh, you can read it for free online. Uh, and yeah, so, so some really wonderful things have happened uh, post, post book coming out. I got named a fellow uh, at the New York Institute for Humanities at NYU. You know, so, so largely a lot of these things came out of publishing Eating Wildly. That's really wonderful. Actually, we never even got into the, that you're my cousin Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, we are related. <laughs> Happily related. Yes, yes. <laughs> so, so, well, we... we um, discovered each other through my next book right this new I'm working on a new book project uh that is basically about um our family legacy uh in New York City's Chinatown and so uh our mutual cousin Cece put us in touch with each other um and I've been for for many years actually I've been researching uh, the Chin side, my father's oh. side of the family. Um, I've been researching the Chins probably since uh, just graduating from college uh, when I was freelancing for the Village Voice newspaper. Um, but I didn't uh, really start researching the family in earnest uh, until after the publication of Eating Wildly, uh, where I felt like I finally feel ready to tackle this very large subject of the Chinese American experience um, of that time of, of that time period, from the point of view of our various family members. So, well, okay, but I want to thank Ava for coming and 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 talking to us about this wonderful book. You know, I encourage everybody to read it. It's a wonderful read, and you'll learn so much. I myself, you know, I I was I had started started birding, and um, my eyesight got so bad I can't really bird anymore. But I'm oh. thinking at least if I'm looking at plants, they're stationary. That's true, and they can't get away from you, That's and you have time true. to identify them. And so maybe I should I should also. Look at the urban foraging. Yeah, I think I think you should. It, one of the great things about foraging is that it really changes your vision. You know, you you can't. I can't walk down the street without seeing something that's growing, that's edible. Um, I think, bef- you know, if you just call a plant a weed, you dismiss it. But once you start to learn, it's common name it's latin name it's culinary and at times medicinal history um, and some of the mythology around the plants um, you can't not see it when you're walking down the street so it really changes your vision and also changes your awareness of your surroundings um, so i think that's that for me that's one of the best things about foraging if you would like to read more about ava and her wonderful book eating wildly and how her search for life and love turns out as well as learn some foraging tips, please go to avachin.com. There is photos of plants and mushrooms that are companions to her book. If you'd like to find out more about the Brooklyn bookworm, you can go to 
thebrooklynbookworm.wordpress.com and please click on the follow button. Thanks so much for listening.